0: This is Our American Stories, and it's time for one of our favorite segments. We love music here on the show, and it's the story of a song, and we've done a bunch of great ones. Jesus Takes the Wheel, There Goes My Life, Another Brick in the Wall, Gimme Shelter, on and on. Go to ouramericannetwork.org and listen to all of them when you're taking a long ride. You'll love it. A lot of it from the songwriters themselves. Light My Fire, The Exegesis by Ray Manzarek, the keyboard player. It's just amazing. There are songs that sound like they've been around forever. Songs that were not written as much as transcribed. Transcribed for the ages. The song we're about to talk about, well, it's one of those songs. It's by country legend Vince Gill. And it's Go Rest High on That Mountain. For the longest time, I just thought it was part of the American songbook. One of those songs that was always just there, like House of the Rising Sun. One of the songs that when you go to find who wrote it, well, it had no author. I want to play a clip because when we're telling the story of the song, we like to hear from the writer himself and the source of the inspiration of this song that felt like it's been around forever. Here's Vince Gill talking about it.
1: I've had bigger hits and songs that have sold more and, and all of those uh, all those things, but that will be the one song hands down that, that will that will identify me and I couldn't be prouder. You know, if that were to wind up in a hymnal someday, it would yeah. just be the sweetest thing in the world, you know, that something I did later in life was would correlate with the very first thing that I ever heard was something out of a hymnal. And I, I know that song is, is powerful. Um, I, I did it, it had no intention of being any of that. You know, all it was intended for was for me to grieve my brother's death and honor him and, and and celebrate what I thought was in store for him and and what really didn't even plan to record it. And Tony Brown said, you have to record this song. I said, well, okay, if you want to. And and, and then they told me they were going to put it as a single. And I said, well, you guys have lost your minds. <laughs> I couldn't have been more wrong, but um, I, I, I really could not be prouder that, that I was lucky enough to, to to strike a chord with people that that they want to go to that song um, in their gravest times and in their most painful and hurtful and, and sad times, that they go to that song to find comfort. Maya Angelou um, got in touch with me and told me that that song um, was an amazing song. Uh, healing process for her when she lost her brother i feel pretty blessed and lucky and all those things to have gotten to write that one
0: and we're all blessed and lucky he did and you know it was interesting as we were listening to that clip greg Hengler pointed out to us that he doesn't just wait for folks to die to celebrate this song and to listen to the song in fact he listens to it every week he told us and then in the end it inspires him as it relates to how to live There was one particular lyric I'm going to quote to you, and then we're going to play the song in its entirety, as we always do with the story of the song. And it's the chorus. Go rest high on that mountain, son, when your work on earth is done. Go to heaven a-shoutin'. Love for the Father and the Son. And with that, for both folks who listen to it uh, when people have died, and for folks like Greg who listen to it to inspire them, Let's take a listen to Vince Gill's song. I know your And you're listening, by the way, to Ricky Skaggs and Patty Loveless. Gill's older brother Bob died of a heart attack in 1993. This song won Vince Gill CMA's Song of the Year Award in 1996 and two Grammys. This is Our American Stories, the story of a song. American stories, and our next story is about a gem. It turns out diamonds haven't always been rare stones. Since 1870, when huge diamond mines were discovered in South Africa, soon after that discovery, the British financiers behind the South African mining effort realized the diamond market would be saturated if they didn't do something about it. So in 1888, they set two audacious goals. One, monopolize diamond prices by creating De Beers mines. De Beers would then be able to stabilize the market by creating both the supply and the demand for diamonds worldwide. Tom Zollner is a journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. He wrote the book The Heartless Stone, a journey through the world of diamonds, deceit, and desire. Here's Tom with the story of that journey.
2: My name is Tom Zollner, and when I was 32 years old, I entered into what is a fairly common rite of passage for a man in America. I asked somebody to marry me, and I gave her a diamond engagement ring, because that's just what you were supposed to do. And I knew very little about diamonds. Um, I studied up on it as best I could. Uh, which wasn't very deep. Um, and I learned that there's this tradition out there that you're supposed to spend two months of your salary as a benchmark, sort of a sliding scale for uh, what's expected. And I wanted to do what was expected. So um, I figured out what I could afford and uh, I bought a, uh, her name is Anne. was Anne? I bought her a diamond ring. I say was because the engagement broke up and I was uh, made the owner of a used diamond ring. And I learned, wow, there's really not a lot to do with this. Um, I didn't want to let go of it for emotional reasons. And I also learned if I was just going to sell it back on the used market, that there really is no used market. And as the ring just sort of sat there in the back of my closet, I began to wonder more and more about it. And it might have been a way of channeling the grief over the lost relationship, but I began to look into diamonds in a way that was a little bit deeper and a little bit different than than I did when I was researching what to buy. I wanted to know, well, where did this come from? And so this took me on uh, what you might call a quest. It lasted for 18 months. And in that Time, I went to 16 different countries on the globe to try and understand where diamonds come from and why we hunger for them. So I'll tell you just a little bit about uh, where I went. First, I went to a place called the Central African Republic, which is a diamond-producing nation at the heart of Africa. It's one of the poorest countries on the globe. It produces... Uh, it's, it ranks number 10 in terms of diamond production among all countries, and yet uh, it is uh, poverty of some of the worst kind, political instability of some of the worst kind, and those two things unfortunately go together. I went out to the back country and learned how diamonds are mined for guys who are making less than a uh, dollar an hour to uh, comb through the soil. Very dangerous work, uh, sometimes in violent conditions, to find uh, these. Uh, pieces of carbon which are brought up to the Earth's surface through uh, these volcanic tubes of what's called the Kimberlite. And so you find them in the river bottoms. It's some of the most primitive mining imaginable. And uh, some of these diamonds emerging from such miserable conditions still find their way to uh, the U.S. market. Uh, I went to Angola, another uh, nation in Africa, of course, uh, which has been racked with uh, had been racked by civil war, largely funded through the the smuggling and the sales of diamonds. Uh, I went to India, which is the uh, headquarters. Uh, the, the state of, the Indian state of Gujarat uh, polishes the majority of diamonds uh, in the world, and I saw the conditions in some of these factories where child labor is used to uh, get the diamonds into the glittery shape that uh, Westerners have expected. I went to Russia to uh, see the birthplace and still the, uh, the headquarters of the synthetic diamond industry, a way that uh, machines have been built to recreate the, the, the heat and the pressure in the earth's mantle that create the diamonds in the first place. And then I took a long look at the marketing history of the diamond, um, the way that uh, these... Shiny pebbles have been sold uh, to Western consumers through the genius, and I say that word uh, with a certain amount of respect, but also advisedly, the genius of the corporation called De Beers Consolidated Mines, which uh, cornered the market in South Africa uh, in the uh, 1890s, thanks to the... uh, the scheming of an Oxford graduate named Cecil Rhodes, for whom the Rhodes Scholars are, are named, uh, Cecil Rhodes founded uh, the De Beers Corporation and, and, and hit upon the insight that the way that you create high prices uh, for these uh, for these little minerals is that you just simply create artificial scarcity in the market, which is uh, what he did and what De Beers continues to uh, try and accomplish, even though it no longer dominates the market as it did today. So it was not only a hive of artificial scarcity, it was also a a, a marketing factory. Uh, It was the De Beers Corporation that created this idea out of whole cloth and invented custom that a young man is supposed to spend two months of his salary on his sweetheart's engagement ring. That turns out, it, it sounds like something from Charles Dickens, but it's actually a, uh, a complete marketing fable. And it was also out of the De Beers uh, Idea Factory with the help of a New York ad agency called J. Walter Thompson. Uh, the, this idea of the eternity of a diamond, the poetry surrounding this trinket. Um, I looked back at some of the ads that were created in the in the Great Depression to uh, convince American men that this is what they needed to do, just to spend money even in the midst of a depression. And the ads all centered around the idea of temporality and of mortality and of the idea that this diamond is going to survive you. It's almost rather morbid. But this was a successful advertising strategy and it was out of this notion that your diamond will last beyond you. That's the the, the brilliant uh, slogan was coined. A diamond is forever. The diamond engagement ring. How else could two months' salary last forever? A diamond is forever. De Beers. So, just to give respect where respect is due, there, there is something chemically unique about a diamond it's uh, as it goes on the Mohs scale of density it is a 10 out of a 10 scale almost no other mineral in fact no other mineral has the ability to slow down light uh, within the chamber of uh, its interiors this is why a diamond sparkles so well uh, the speed of light at 186 uh, 1000 miles per second has slowed down to 77,000 miles per second within a diamond which is why it sparkles and when you polish it in a particular configuration the uh, the effect is 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 really dazzling I'm, I I have no issue with that um but to slow down the light um in some ways is a metaphor for the diamond itself it is a Uh, A chamber of slow light and emptiness because at the heart of the diamond, which was my conclusion, is mythology. The mythology that society has spun around it and the individual mythologies that we put around diamonds. The story we tell about them, which is in fact, in its most prominent feature, the story of our engagement. The story of our marriage. One of the most mysterious uh, and frightening Uh, and lovely and potentially heartbreaking things that we get to do. Uh, The genius of De Beers and the diamond industry was that it was able to set up a toll booth uh, right at the entrance to this adventure. And this, for me, is the true legacy of the diamond. And at the heart of the the book uh, that I wrote called The Heartless Stone.
0: And you've been listening to Tom Zollner, journalist and professor who lives in Los Angeles. His book, The Heartless Stone, My goodness, go to Amazon and get it or The Usual Suspects. Heck, go to a bookstore, too. And by the way, what a story he told. And we all know, especially we men who've done this, gone and bought that diamond and coughed up that two months worth of pay, thinking, how did we get roped into this? Not the marriage, not the engagement, but that two months of pay thing. But we all do it, if we have any sense about us. What a work of marketing by De Beers! And by J. Walter Thompson, a diamond is forever. And as our writer and storyteller told us, that diamond is a toll booth at the entrance of the most important relationship in our lives, marriage, that mysterious, lovely, and often heartbreaking relationship. Tom older story, the story of the diamond, here on Our American Story. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from arts to sports, from history to business, and everything in between, stories about love and death, and things you care about. Send your stories to ouramericannetwork.org, and we'll listen to them, produce them, and get some microphones over to you and get a team out to you and get the stories on the air. I would say one in five of our stories now are coming from you. And our next story, well, Alex Cortez brings it to us. Here's an unusual college president.
3: Look, I was all over the place. We served in Germany, in Korea. I was in the 101st Airborne Division when we went into Iraq in '03 as one of the first groups across the border after shock and awe. I served a year in Afghanistan managing construction in, in Bagram for a year. So the Army gave me more than I ever could have given it.
4: Mike Rounds is an unusual college president of an equally unusual
3: college. We have so many employers that want to hire these guys, not just for their skills, but for their character, for their leadership abilities. So we say, if you're a company you want to hire, you pay us to come to these career fairs. The two career fairs we had this year, we ran out of space both times, and we had a total of 175 companies from 14 states, and that's to hire 76 seniors, right? So that's crazy. I mean, there's no other school in the country that can say we have almost twice as many employers paying money to try to come and hire these guys than we have students.
4: And it's a trade school. Williamson College of the Trades.
3: In today's culture, it's become, well, you know, um, if I don't want to take advanced placement philosophy, write essays that are going to get me into, you know, Harvard... Well, if I tell a counselor that I'd rather work with wood, now I get treated a certain way that isn't always very good. You're a Votech tech kid. You're not motivated. For our guys, they like to work with their hands. So they like the idea of working with wood or being outside or building something or fixing something. And so looking at that young man and saying, look, your abilities, desires, skills, interest in working with your hands is nothing to be ashamed of. In fact, we need guys like you. Our two oldest sons graduated from Princeton, and I tell people this all the time. Great school, but I don't believe that they had all the Princeton graduates multiplied by 1.5 or 1.7 companies competing to hire those people. They just didn't, and I don't think there's anyone else in the country that can claim that, but we have it right here twice a year. You can come see it for yourself.
4: And these kids with two job offers on average went to a college that's free if you can believe that it was founded by an awesome dude named Isaiah Williamson to be free
3: vision of a philanthropist a Quaker here in Philadelphia he was a very wealthy man and um, but also very frugal and who said i see these poor young men on the streets with no future and i want to build a school where free of charge They can get training in a trade and an education, moral and religious, and exercise and recreation to become useful, respected members of society. When he passed away, he left a million dollars to endow the school and a million to build it. So for 130 years, it's been doing that. And so it's still, every student that attends here is completely funded room board and tuition. Outside of a few student fees, that equate to probably less than two thousand dollars over the three years that they're here, everything is provided for them and they're all young men from some pretty extreme need. We have over 400 applicants for only a hundred spots so we focus on the young men that first have the capability and the desire to go through this challenging program but then the next default goes back to who has the most financial need and that's the neat part of it. This run really like a military academy. Early morning they're up, they clean their room in their common areas, they come out in front of the flagpole 7:15, and they stand at attention and watch the flag go up and get inspected for their appearance and breakfast and chapel and we pack their day full of class and shop and activities. So it's an intense environment. They have to be clean-shaven. The first two years, the senior year, they're allowed to have a, uh, a neatly trimmed beard or mustache but that's part of the inspection in the morning. Their shoe shine, do they look presentable? They have clean clothes on. They're all in coat and tie. Well, you can imagine that you know most of the kids that come here have never owned a coat and tie. So we actually have a clothes closet. People donate gently used coats, suits, shoes, belts. And so that's what the guys wear. Every day when they come to line up in every meal, they're in coat and tie. And then when they go to the shop, they change into their shop clothes. But that, that's another unique part of Williamson, I guess.
4: But why wear a coat and tie at all? I mean, it's not the uniform for most trade jobs.
3: It's interesting, where did that idea come from? It's kind of been here forever. One of the reasons was that when Mr. Williamson wrote his deed of trust, he designated a board of trustees. And on that board of trustees was a guy named John Wanamaker. And John Wanamaker's famous store in Philadelphia for many, many years, They would go down to Wanamaker's store and they would fit them with two suits and it was always part of the culture here. Years later that dried up but then the idea of continuing to have them in coat and tie and just to give you an idea last year's freshman class when we averaged the family's taxable income per family member it came out to $4200 so very few of them have owned a coat and tie and we don't have a uniform factory putting them in a uniform but to say this is our standard and we recognize that you probably we don't have the means to acquire that stuff so that's why we run the clothes closet and i really think that it changes even subconsciously how they view themselves and i think they really feel like they're part of something special maybe for the first time in their lives and it's how they carry themselves how they think of themselves is all part of that and i think having them dress the way we have them dress and groomed the way that they groomed is all part of building that confidence in themselves. Is zero tolerance for drugs and alcohol. So, I mean, one offense, you're out.
4: As a Catholic, hearing that was painful.
3: I'm Catholic too, and I, I'm, a, I'm a social drinker. I like beer, but I always tell them the story that, hey, I was a lieutenant colonel in Afghanistan for a year, and general order number one was no alcohol. And I like beer, and I like to drink socially, but... I knew the rule was the rule, and I didn't argue with it and say, oh, I'm a colonel, I shouldn't have to do that, or I, I just said, that's the rule, it's very clear, and you have to make a decision. You know, are you, are you going to chance it, or are you going to not do it? The sh- only sure way to not get something to happen is to avoid it. And, you know, as you transition from being a high school student to being a, a grown man who's starting to make decisions about the, your future, you need to put yourself with the kind of people that are making better decisions than that. It is strict, but for a lot of these guys, the discipline and structure is what sets them apart when the employers come. The day of the career fair, all you got to do is just walk through the gym and ask these companies, you're here from Kentucky, California, why? What do you?" And they will tell you exactly why they come and try to hire Williamson guys. It has as much to do with the discipline and character pieces of these guys as it does to do with the specific skills they may have been trained in in their individual program
4: here's one Williamson student on the day of his graduation
3: I had eight job offers when I took the one I have now and they're still rolling in I got a phone call yesterday for another one how many college graduates have employers actively seeking them for employment and I think that's one thing about this place like besides everything else that this place has to offer you will graduate with a job guaranteed if you want it you got it
0: And we're going to continue with this story after a commercial break. And it came to us from one of our friends in Grand Rapids, Michigan. And his name's Mark Murray, and he told us about Williamson College of the Trades, and we jumped right on it. And some folks from there have visited Williamson and are now looking to bring its model to their community with a Catholic trade school called Harmel. Your community can do this too, by the way, and that's why we bring you these stories. Stories have a tremendous imitative power. And just shipping our kids off to college to accumulate debt with no discernible skills after just can't continue. And we keep hearing this from our listeners. That this is such a big concern of theirs. And reach out to Mike Rounds, the president, and take a visit. Every region in America could use a Williamson College. By the way, I was particularly taken aback, not just that they're teaching the trades, but more important, they're teaching character. That suit thing is great. And I love it when Mr. Rounds said it changes how these kids view themselves, how they carry themselves, and how they think of themselves. And when we come back, more of this remarkable story of Williamson College of the Trades with Mike Rounds, the president. This is Our American Stories. We return to the story of Williamson College of the Trades, a trade school outside of Philadelphia, but not your ordinary trade school, folks, a, a product of great generosity and philanthropy. And we're talking to its president, former military man, Mike Rounds. Let's pick up where we last left off.
3: Every day we go to a short 15 minute chapel before we head off to class at eight. And I get up early so I can get over there I'm a former military guy, so I'm used to, I get up at 4.30, (laughs) I get out and head over to the YMCA, get a workout in, get back, and try to be over here a little before 7.30, so that I can start my day, just just not, not to show my face there, but because I really, I think that's a unique part of being at Williamson, is the opportunity to start each day in chapel, thinking about what's really important. When you apply to Williamson, you don't have to say, I'm a Christian, But as part of the interview process, we tell you the things that are unique about Williamson, and that includes going to daily chapels. So although a student doesn't have to sign a profession of faith or stand up and say anything, they do understand that just like everything at Williamson, you can't opt out. So you are required to be there in your seat, ready to go when we start chapel at 730. Be respectful. Stay awake. But for the guys that have that piece in their life, it's a great connecting point. There's a lot of fellowship opportunities So that, to me, is something I really love about Williamson It's pretty special.
4: It's pretty special of President Rounds 2. Most college presidents aren't involved with the students like this.
3: Service is also one of our core values, and we have a whole week, the May, after final exams, we take the next week, and everybody gets involved in a service project. Staff, faculty, students, off campus, all around the area, and just the idea of like, hey. Guys, you know, uh, Mr. Williamson and many others have made this possible for you. So now give back yourself. Make that part of who you are. Serve your community. Find places where you can contribute your skills, talent, time, whatever. Pay it forward.
4: Here's some more Williamson students on the day of their graduation.
1: My roommate, Richie, I think it might have been freshman year or junior year, he pulled over on the side of 202 and fixed somebody's flat tire. You know every time I'm driving, I look for somebody on the side of the road. If they have a flat tire, I, I try to stop if I can, or even just someone needs money. Like, you see somebody struggling with gas, if they're five bucks in there, it's just a little stuff that, like, it becomes a habit. Like, I want to do it now. And I truly think it's the people around me and this place that makes me do it.
3: You create that culture by two things, I think. First, being together.
1: If you came here with a family that's falling apart or struggling, you come here and you build another one.
3: I don't think this place would work if we just had these guys show up in the morning, take a couple classes, and then just go back to wherever they came from. They live together in dorms of 24 with a dorm parent that lives there full time with them. They do everything together. Over three years, they build very strong bonds.
1: Uh, My experience freshman year, my grandfather passed away, and I was pulled out of class early morning. And by the time I got to the hospital, I checked my phone, and I had several texts from about 20 to 30 different guys asking me how I'm doing, how you holding up, is there anything we can do? And I was with my immediate family, but I knew in the back of my head, you know, I got another family back at school that they're really there to help me. So that's that hit hard.
3: We call it a brotherhood, right? I mean, that's what we tell them. This is a brotherhood. Like, your buddies you hung out with in high school are not living their life to the same standard you are.
5: I had um, a close friend, well, still my close friend, in uh, high school, senior year. When I told him I was thinking about coming to Williamson, you know, first thing was also a boys' school. You know, a high school—that's the last thing you want to hear for college. But I forgot um, all Yeah, me too. You know, the three years, the three. Now I'm in my third. Well, now I'm a graduate actually, and uh, which is awesome. I'm a graduate, and uh, you know, he's—he's he's just like, oh man, I wish I went to that school. You know he owes crazy amounts of money. He's struggling in school. He's struggling to keep up with the payments, and now it's just like he's looking at me and he's like, "You're about to graduate, you know." So if I could talk, or you're a graduate, I'm sorry. So if I could talk to, uh, <laughs> if I could talk to, um, if I could talk to any high school student, I would tell them make the mature decision. You know, it's hard to get through to them because they're coming out of high school, but you got to really look at yourself in the mirror and say. Am I going to the NBA? Am I going to the NFL? Am I going to be this big music star? Or, you know, I'm not saying not to chase your dream, but Williamson will It'll give you direction. It'll put you in a position. Something small as, uh, you know, going to North Dakota for the summer. That was a, like I went to North Dakota for a summer to work, and I had never been on a plane before. You know, my first time getting on a plane was through Williamson. I got that experience through Williamson. So it's just, I think they should make the mature decision. You got to really look at yourself in the mirror and say, what do I need to do as a man, not as what I'm seeing on television or what I see in movies or what this kid did or that kid did. Because you got to make the decision for yourself. So
3: that is the environment we want to create. And, you know, it can be tough. I mean, in an environment like that, where there's a lot of rules and a lot of consequences when you don't meet, it can become kind of a negative, right? At the worst, it could almost become like a prison camp environment, but it's not, just like it's not at a military academy, because the focus of what we're trying to teach them in leadership, so with the seniors, as you progress through as a freshman, you're in the shop at the same time as the seniors. So the seniors are responsible for training the freshmen, directing them to lead it with a positive attitude, but to direct somebody, to inspect their work, to correct them when they need it. But in the big picture, right, to be enthusiastic and and what you want is that freshman looks at that senior and says, wow, that guy is so squared away. That guy, I want to be like him when I'm a senior. That's what you want.
5: My freshman year coming in, it was always like watching the seniors. Like I was always looking at the seniors, just paying attention, even when they didn't think we was paying attention to what they was doing. And it just really hit that, uh, you know, as a senior, to lead, you can't just tell we was you can't just tell the freshmen to do this. You have to tell them to do this, and then they have to see you doing what you told them to do on a daily basis. And that's uh, you know, that's something that's one of the core values that stuck with me too, integrity. Any,
3: any leader can lead through fear and intimidation and being negative. That's a way to get somebody to do something, but when you lead by example in our role model and inspire and motivate, then people will run through walls for you. And that's the culture we're trying to build here at Williamson as we train our students through a three-year leadership program that culminates in them basically being in charge in the shops and working with the freshmen. We have five of our trustees. It's kind of neat. We have 20 trustees. Ten that are just love our mission, have no connection to it family-wise. Five that are sons of graduates. Right, their dads came here. They didn't go here, but because their dads did, they were very successful and they had other opportunities and they themselves were successful. But they say that Williamson altered the path of my whole family by my dad coming here. And then five that are graduates, including our chairman, who is Bill Bonneberger, was a brick mason from Tamaqua, Coal Country and came here and went to work for Toll Brothers for six years and met his wife there and the two of them decided to quit and start their own home building company and they're now like the 10th largest home builder in the Philadelphia area right and then Art Lalo is class of 79 Ph.D. Art Lalo he it is a great story too because he he was a he was a machinist and he (laughs) he's sitting in the last week of class before graduation at the time and the Boeing guy comes in and says who wants to work for Boeing and Art's like, hmm, that sounds like a good company. I'll and raised his hand. And the guy took down a name and said, all right, show up Monday at this gate. Come in, blah, 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 do this. And then he walks out of the room. And Art said, uh, told the shop instructor, so is that the interview Monday? He goes, no, that was the interview. He's expecting you to start work Monday at Boeing. So, <laughs> so Art graduated Saturday, went to work for Boeing. He's still working there 32 years later. He went to night school on Boeing's dime for 22 years. He got a bachelor's, two master's, and a Ph.D., and is an adjunct professor at Widener in addition to being a senior project manager. And we got Tom Gokey, who's class of 81, a machinist, who's the president and CEO of Millikron. And Millikron's headquartered in Cincinnati has, I think, 7,500 employees worldwide, and he's president and CEO. And then John Barnes, power plant class of 84, is the COO of Exelon and Exelon is a monstrous company, but he's a COO, right? So all those guys can stand in front of our students and say, hey, uh, I started just like you, and the things they're teaching at Williamson will give you the tools to be as successful or more successful than, than I have been. So it's up to you. Again, it's about them coming in here with little confidence and then seeing as they build their own confidence and seeing the opportunities, it's a neat thing to see. You're literally breaking a cycle of poverty for most of these kids.
0: And great job, as always, to Alex, who brings us such interesting stories. And this is a great one, folks. And again, you know, we hope people will copy this. If you've got some net worth or know somebody who does in your community, my goodness, take a visit to this remarkable school, Williamson College of the Trades. And Mike Rounds would be happy to hear you. And if you're listening and you want to just send a donation, well, Williamson College of the Trades, Google it, send a check, your money will go to good use. You heard it in the voices of those young folks. By the way, Dr. Jack Templeton of the Templeton Foundation got to know Williamson and his foundation. He wondered whether they were actually getting the results that they thought they were, so he commissioned a three-year, multi-million dollar project with Tufts University to study Williamson and a few other comparable schools and found that on average, Williamson was just killing it. Their students scored higher on character attributes like reliability, excellence, competence, and connection to other students. And my goodness, these are big deals. Tufts also concluded that Williamson's system of structure and rules and its brotherhood environment were very important to the cultivation of the character we just talked about. This is Our American Stories, the story of Mike Rounds, the story of Williamson College of the Trades, and in the end, the story of American generosity, here on Our American Stories. is lee habib with our american stories and we tell stories about everything here on this show from the arts to sports and from business to history and everything in between including your stories send them to our they are some of our favorites and now it's time for another powerful story from our friend jay moore jay is a retired history teacher from abilene texas who's known for hosting presentations about his city's history to over 900 fellow citizens that show up for them. And by the way, I believe every town's got a resident storyteller. And if you know that person, if you have a Jay Moore in your town, send him our way. Again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And today, Jay brings us the story of two American heroes from West Texas. Take it away, Jay.
6: Every town has its unique vocabulary, a local lexicon those words and phrases which are understood in that place but often don't carry much meaning past the city limits. And in my West Texas hometown, if someone says Dyess, well, you know what they mean. That's Dyess spelled with a capital D, D-Y-E-S-S. Everyone knows that you're referring to the big Air Force base that calls Abilene, Texas home. And Abilenians are proud of the base when we hear Dyess It evokes a mental picture of those planes and the missions and of those young men and women who wear Air Force dress blues and battle camouflage and who are serving out there. For the vast majority of folks, hearing the word Dias does not conjure up an image of anything or anyone else. I think it should. Hearing Dias should bring to mind a dark-haired, Hollywood handsome young man who was from the small nearby town of Albany, Texas and who lived and breathed. Ed Dias would endure unimaginable suffering, and he would live with great compassion. He was a young man, steeled with determination and selflessness, and it would be those very traits that cost him his life. Dias Air Force Base nearly bore a different name. In fact, when the months-old Abilene Air Force Base was renamed by the military in 1956, there were scores of suggestions for whom to honor, including Davy Crockett and even Daniel Boone. But one very near possibility was to name it Grimes Air Force Base. Grimes was Rudyard Grimes. And like Dias, he too was a local boy. He was born in Abilene and stayed here until leaving for college. Grimes and Dias were contemporaries. Born months apart during World War I, both of them were young men in their 20s during World War II and both served with valor in the Philippines. Both would be captured, and both forced to endure the Bataan Death March. Two West Texas boys who both suffered a hell, half a world from home. One of them would survive, and one of them would not. One set of parents would receive a telegram causing them to collapse into joyous relief, and then to rise up and dance in their living room. While two more parents would crumple into an unimaginable, sorrow-filled pain, and would be forever racked with questions for which there were very few good answers. The father of Rudyard Grimes was long and lean, and many thought that Frank Grimes looked a bit like Ichabod Crane, and even today, the shadow of Frank Grimes in Abilene remains bright and wide, although it's been nearly 60 years since he passed away. For more than 40 years, Frank Grimes was the editor of our newspaper, The Abilene Reporter News, and his ability to speak through the written word caused many people to feel a personal connection to a man that they never actually met. His life was filled with contrasts. Frank Grimes was scholarly and highly educated, but it was a self-education as he dropped out of school in the eighth grade. He was a voracious reader, and if he wasn't at home or at work he could usually be found at the city library and although he was quiet in public, his written words were a daily part of life for tens of thousands living in West Texas. Frank had arrived in Abilene in 1914 when he was just 23, and he joined a staff of just two newswriters. Within a few years, he was named the editor in charge, and as such, he turned out an astonishing amount of work. He had a real knack for clearing out the clutter and the underbrush of complex issues. He presented clear and concise and even whimsical opinions on subjects that ranged from war and politics to the weatherman's forecast and pumpkin pies which he detested. Grimes was just a small town editor who daily wrote up to six editorials and he did so for four decades. He would twice be in the final round for a Pulitzer Prize. Frank was a poet as well but he held those writings much closer to the vest. In September of 1917, Frank included a short piece in the paper announcing that he and Mrs. Grimes had welcomed a 10-pound baby boy. As a lover of poetry, Frank suggested to his wife that maybe they could name the baby for his most esteemed literary idol, which was Rudyard Kipling. Mrs. Grimes agreed, so Rudyard Kipling Grimes came to live in Abilene, and he would always be referred to as Rudyard. They never shortened it to Rudy. In noting his son's birth, the new dad quoted himself with a wink, writing, He's the finest boy in Abilene. Just months before, in 1916, the newspaper had carried the announcement of another baby boy, a boy born to Richard and Hallie Dias, 40 miles north in Albany. They named their son William Edwin. As a boy, everyone called him Eddie, and later, as a young man, it was shortened to just Ed. By the mid-1930s, Rudyard Grimes had grown to six feet, and he was studying at Abilene High School where he loved physics and he played in the band. Following graduation, he headed off to Texas A&M, but his plans changed following his freshman year when he received an appointment to attend the academy at West Point. Meanwhile, one county away, Ed Dias, who also was six feet, spent most days working after school at a gas station but he also began to slip away to take a few flying lessons from the barnstorming pilots who had dropped in on Albany. When he graduated, he headed to nearby Stephenville and John Tarleton College. And like Grimes, he soon received an appointment, his to the west point of the air, to Kelly Field in San Antonio. Rudyard Grimes and Ed Dias would share remarkably parallel lives. West Texas boys who wanted to serve their country and who married within months of one another, who both sailed to the Philippines for their first military assignments.
0: And you're listening to Jay Moore telling the tale of two West Texas boys affected by World War II, Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes. Their stories continue, and Jay Moore continues, here on Our American Stories. And we're back with Our American Stories and the story of Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes. We left off with the two young men sailing to the Philippines for their first military assignments during World War II. Let's return to Jay Moore for more of their stories.
6: Ed Dias bid his parents goodbye in 1940, while Rudyard left home a few months earlier. Frank Grimes saw his finest Abilene boy off at the Abilene train station where they stoically shook hands and Frank wished his son a bon voyage. Dyson and Grimes crossed the Pacific and each came to a place where they would rise to their formidable occasions and where both would present their dauntless courage and a selfless enterprise. It seems often overlooked that on December 7th, 1941, Japan not only attacked at Pearl Harbor, but they also launched an attack on the American-controlled Philippine Islands. U.S. and Filipino forces would battle the Japanese invasion for four long months. Dias and Grimes would be very much in the thick of it. With American forces being cut off and overrun, General MacArthur moved his troops to the Bataan Peninsula, there on the main island of Luzon. It was an attempt to hold out until a relief force could arrive from the United States. A month after Pearl Harbor, on January 7th, the Japanese forces began a siege of the peninsula. Five days later, on January 12th, 1942, Rudyard Grimes organized 50 soldiers and led them in a boldly audacious attack across a field of rice paddies against dug-in Japanese positions. It was a move that seemed suicidal because the area was being swept by machine gun and mortar fire But Grimes placed himself at the head of the group, and in an effort so heroic that it would later earn him the nation's second highest medal for military valor, the Distinguished Service Cross, Grimes succeeded in routing the enemy and restoring the main line of resistance. Due to a shortage of planes during the Philippine fight, Ed Dias was temporarily transferred to the infantry There he volunteered to lead 20 men in a surprising amphibious landing assault on the west coast of Bataan to eliminate Japanese troops. It would be the first amphibious U.S. assault of World War II. A month later he was back in his battle-scarred P-40 Warhawk that he had nicknamed Kibosh. It was a plane he had already used to down six Japanese aircraft. He resourcefully improvised an action they would earn him the Distinguished Service Cross as well. Using some West Texas know-how, he turned his P-40 fighter into an improvised bomber by strapping bombs beneath the wings and jerry-rigging a release. He then flew to Subic Bay, and he managed to destroy an enormous supply dump, and he squarely hit a 12,000-ton Japanese transport. Flying two more sorties, he damaged launches, barges, and forced a 6,000-ton vessel to run aground. Later, the Japanese Navy claimed that they had been attacked by three waves of bombers. In fact, it was just a few fighter planes and a good-looking kid from Albany, Texas. While the fight for Bataan raged, a radiogram arrived in Abilene from Grimes. The 24-year-old wrote to his parents, Don't worry, I am all right. The letter is on the way. I'm a captain now. On March 11th, MacArthur was taken out of harm's way and removed to Australia. The Japanese launched their all-out assault on Bataan on April 2nd. That same day, Mr. and Mrs. Dias received a cablegram from their son, and it read, I'm doing fine. Save me a big Hereford steak. They would not hear from their son again for over a year. On April 9th, as a commanding officer, Dias was to be evacuated, but he refused to abandon the 200 men of his squadron who were going to be left behind. And instead he gave his plane to another pilot for a last bombing run and a flight to safety. Later that day, the Bataan Peninsula fell to the Japanese in what would be the largest surrender of US forces in American history. Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes and thousands of others were now prisoners of the Japanese Imperial Army. They were captured north of Merivellis. And the next morning, they and some 70,000 other captives were forced to march. They would walk more than 60 miles north to prison camps in a miserably unforgiving heat. Hundreds of them would die along the way, and some were killed just for failing to keep up. The infamous trek has become synonymous with savagery, but also with American and Filipino determination. The Bataan Death March would later be judged as a war crime. Somehow, Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes survived that brutal odyssey. And although Americans back home learned of the surrender, it would be nearly two years before the public learned of the merciless march. Shortly after the surrender, it was announced in Washington that nothing could be done for the American fighting men captured on Bataan. But in Albany, Richard Dias and his fellow townsmen refused to take that news sitting down. And Mr. Dias suggested to a group of Albany men, You know, there's one sure way we can go in there and get Ed. If we can get a submarine close by, maybe he can get to it. Dias even wrote to MacArthur with that suggestion. And the general replied, but noted that there were many difficulties. Two weeks before Christmas of 1942, Nine months after being captured, telegrams arrived in West Texas just two days apart. The first came to Frank Grimes on December 12th, and 48 hours later, a second was delivered to the Dias home in Albany. And both telegrams read the same. Both confirmed what each family suspected. Your son, Captain Rudyard K. Grimes. Your son, Major Edwin Dias, is a prisoner of war of the Japanese government on the Philippine Islands. Frank Grimes wrote in his editorial the next day, knowing at last that your son is alive, though a prisoner, lifts a great burden from the heart. As long as there is life, there is hope. Four months later, Ed Dias and 11 other prisoners would pull off the near impossible. After a year in captivity, they would escape their prison camp, and they would be the only ones to ever do so. Ed would spend three months fighting a guerrilla war before being rescued and taken away from the Philippines, just as his dad suggested by an American submarine. The hope that Frank Grimes felt in receiving that earlier telegram confirming his son was a prisoner turned out to be just a vain wisp, a temporary reprieve. The devastating news of his son's death in a Japanese prison camp arrived on July the 3rd of 1943, more than a year since the Bataan March. When the telegram was delivered, the proud father of Abilene's finest boy turned white. His son was gone at the age of 25. He would be racked with worry and woe, wondering how his son had endured those final days. Ten days after getting this most dreaded news, Frank Grimes closed his editorial, writing, We believe with all our heart that to die for one's country is the noblest death of all. And just days later, Mr. and Mrs. Dias received a cablegram in Albany. It was an unbelievable one that. It was from their son, reading, Hello folks, safe, in perfect health, letter follows via airmail, all my love. It was a bolt out of the blue. That wonderful news was carried in newspapers across the country. His mother told a reporter, It seemed like a miracle. I wanted to shout from the housetops. And I went out and I walked and I don't even remember where. You just can't realize what it means to wait. To wait every day. Every hour. And I have been waiting since 1941. Soon Ed Dyes was back in the United States brought first to Washington, and then to a hospital in West Virginia. Newspapers and magazines competed to report his story. And it was the Chicago Tribune who won permission from the military to take down the heroic account of Ed Dias. But only days after telling his tale to the Tribune reporter, the Secretary of State, Henry Stimson, withdrew permission to publish the story, and the paper was told to not divulge a single detail Of how the captives had to march, how they were killed, and how the survivors were still suffering.
0: And you've been listening to Jay Moore telling the remarkable story of two West Texas men and their service to the country, and the loss of one life and the survival of another, the reaction of those two families, and the reaction of the town and the community. Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes. Their stories continue here on Our American Stories. And if you have stories like these in your town, and I know you do, again, send them to ouramericannetwork.org. And if there's a Jay Moore in your town, we want to know him or her. Again, ouramericannetwork.org. More of Ed Dias' story and Rudyard Grimes here on Our American Story. we continue with our American stories and Ed Dias and Rudyard Grimes stories. The two young men were captured by the Japanese in the Philippines in part of the horrific Bataan Death March during World War II. Their two families received telegrams, one relaying that Ed Dias escaped and will be returning home and the other declaring that Rudyard Grimes had died as a POW. Ed came home ready to reveal his story to the American public until the military told him otherwise let's return to jay moore
6: ed dyes was given a military order he was to not utter a word about his ordeal or the ordeal of the other captives the fear was that the story and the brutal truth might inflame the japanese and might even demoralize the american public washington had decided it was not time to reveal the horror of the bataan death march Dias was anxious to return to the fight, and he was told that he could report for duty in California by November. In the meantime, he made a homecoming stop in Albany. His mother had saved up her ration points, and on the table when he arrived home was a huge Hereford Steak. Ed and his wife would spend six days with his parents, and they relaxed in the comfort of his childhood home. It had been three years, In a lifetime of experiences since he had last been there. All of Albany gathered at the football stadium on November the 5th of 43, and the crowd stood and they applauded at length as the young man that they all knew as Eddie took his place behind the microphone. On his old football field, he told the crowd that the lump in his throat felt as though he had swallowed a 10-gallon hat. It was widely reported that he could not talk about his experiences in the Philippines, and the crowd knew it. Instead, Ed said to the people of Albany, This is the greatest honor I will ever receive. When the folks at home are glad to see you, home, well, you can't beat that. I want you to know I love every one of you. Following his Albany visit, Dice was to continue west to California. But first there was a stop he knew he needed to make, and he drove down to Abilene to see Frank Grimes. At the reporter news, he was shown upstairs to the editor's office. Two military escorts from local Camp Barkley proudly accompanied the Hero of Bataan, as many papers now referred to Dias. With the guards outside the office, Frank Grimes shook the hand of Ed Dias, asked him in, and closed the door to his office behind him. What an extraordinary moment when that office door was pushed shut. Two men touched so directly and so personally by a conflict involving the entire world. Frank Grimes was 52, Ed Dias barely 27. It was a Monday morning. It was sunny outside, and the temperature was in the 40s. From the north window of Grimes' office, you could see the marquee of the Queen Theater that touted a Tyrone Power movie. I feel sure that Dias commented on the mahogany desk plate that had been sent to Frank from his son two years before. It was from the Manila Polo Club. That was a place that Dias had been to many times. 26 years had passed since Frank Grimes proudly reported the arrival of the finest Abilene boy. And now, he was longing to know what happened to his son. And before him, in crisp military dress, was a miracle. An escapee who had been there, someone who had lived the same experience, an eyewitness of things half a world away, was now seated right next to him. Frank Grimes wanted to know what happened to his boy. Had Di seen him among the other captives? Had they spoken to each other? What was it like? What did his son face and how did he handle it all? Any scrap of information, anything. And yet, the circumstances boxed them both in. Grimes knew that the young man across from him, his only conduit of information, was under strict orders to tell no one about Bataan and about Japanese treatment of prisoners. Grimes knew he shouldn't even ask. And Dias was duty-bound to say nothing of the brutal march and the gruesome treatment. That evening's editorial in the Abilene newspaper was titled, Let Them Speak. Grimes had written that the War Department should let Dias and the other escapees talk. Let the Chicago paper print his tale. He wrote that Washington bigwigs, had badly bungled the job of informing the American public of what we were up against. He wrote, do they imagine that we can't take it? Adding, it must be heartbreaking for Dias to say no to people who ask for information concerning loved ones now among the immortals of Batan." Of course, Frank Grimes knew that firsthand. He held out hope that one day when the ban was lifted Dias could come back, fill in the blanks, and tell all that he knew. In an editorial written three months later, Grimes told what happened in his office that day after the door was closed. The two men decided on this. Since Dias was commanded to not talk, they agreed that Frank Grimes would. And using his imagination and from his tormenting nightmares, he would describe the last days of Batan, as he had over and over envisioned them to be, as he felt it must have been for the sick and the starving prisoners, and as he imagined the difficulties faced by his own son and what it took to endure it all. Grimes later recalled, I described how those boys must have hoped in vain for relief, how they must have fought with every ounce of their waning strength and how they gave up only when human flesh could take no more. How they had to suffer the anger-fueled indignities from the enemy and the inhuman brutality that no normal mentality could even conceive of. When he finished his pain-filled description of what he imagined had happened to his son, the two men sat in a momentary silence. And then Frank Grimes looked into the eyes of Ed Dias and softly asked, Was it something like that? The boy from Albany grimly and softly answered, Yes. Grimes wrote, I knew from the way he said it that my imagination had been
0: inadequate. And the beauty of radio is that you can... Draw a picture for yourself of what that scene looked like in that office between that father and that soldier, and the soldier wanting so desperately to share with the dad the story of how his son died and the circumstances under which his son died. The military had its objective, and it's an understandable one. The father had his, and the son, well... We wanted to know more. And the soldier, he walked that line beautifully. He both obeyed the military order and respected the father's wishes. And the idea of using his imagination, as grim as that must have been, to try and conjure up in your own mind the circumstances that led to your own son's death and the brutal circumstances. Much has been written about the brutality. The savagery of the Japanese Against our men and women as prisoners of war And it was savage treatment The worst, perhaps, in all of World War II Much worse than the Nazi treatment of the POWs That's how bad the Japanese treatment was When we come back, we continue this remarkable story Ed Dias' story, Rudyard Grimes' story And Frank Grimes, too, and all of the families around this, because this story affected many, many people. And there were stories like this throughout World War II, hundreds of thousands of them. 450,000 or so died in World War II. When we come back, more of this remarkable story, this Great West Texas story, here on Our American Story.